Welcome, fantastic friends, to the new episode of the Fancast at Four podcast, the number one Fantastic Four fancasting podcast on the internet. Presumably. I'd say resolutely. I'm Dan Bettenhausen. And I am Jack Mayer. And we are your hosts as we venture into the what-ifs of Marvel's first family, who will be appearing in phase six of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. With Matt Shackman set to direct the MCU's Fantastic Four film, we still can explore what it would be like if a different director was behind the camera and who might they cast. This week, we're excited to have a returning guest to the podcast, Kaylee Vaughn. Kaylee, so glad you could join us again. For those who may not have gotten to hear your previous episode, we discussed Wes Anderson. Now, would you mind telling our listeners a little bit more about yourself? Yeah, I am a museum curator from South Carolina, so I'm a Southern girl. Um, I love movies. I've always been a movie fan. Love old movies, musicals, rom-coms. Those are kind of like my three main categories, but I mean, I like any kind of movie. If it You're the right the place for musicals, yeah. <laughs> uh, so, you know, I'm going to put you on the spot here. What are maybe uh, like some top, like top three, top five movies? Like I said, I'm not, no specific order. What are maybe some five that come to mind? Like these are these are my five. Oh, for sure. I mean, I will say that Princess Bride is like always going to be my top one. I mean, it just oh. has never has not been dethroned yet. It's <laughs> a great choice. <laughs> yeah, um, but I mean, I love. Uh, I was a huge, I'm like any other like basic white girl. I loved Audrey Hepburn flight from the, probably the ages of like 12 to like 15, but I do like some of the more like avant-garde ones. Of hers. I love like two for the road, her and Albert Finney. I love that movie. I mean, musical wise, uh, you know, I love sound of music. It's probably one of my all time favorites too. So, I mean, I, I mean, I, I run the gamut. <laughs> and I'm going to assume you love the movie cats from 2019 as everyone who joins the podcast does right, Jack. Yeah, of course. And Mamma Mia. And Mama uh, Mia. Our, two, our two favorite musicals on the podcast. Exactly. I mean, I am a huge ABBA fan. <laughs> I, Mamma Mia the, is just, I think, one of the most perfect uh, two film series ever made. Yeah. I, and I, I got to see it. I got to see it. Um, I grew up just below Charlotte. So I got to see a lot of Broadway national tours. So I did get mm-hmm. to see Mamma Mia, I think, in around like 2002 or something like that. And tour. it was amazing. Yeah. Well, with Kaylee introduced, let us take an opportunity to introduce the director we will be discussing. This week, we are featuring an American film director, producer, screenwriter, cinematographer, and editor who is considered a leader in modern independent cinema. His film career spans a multitude of genres, but he specializes in psychological, crime, and heist films. His films tend to focus on themes of shifting personal identities, inventions, sexuality, morality, and the human condition. His films also employ distinct cinematography influenced by avant-garde cinema, and he is known to utilize unconventional cameras. Many of his films are anchored by multi-layered storylines with plot twists, non-linear storytelling, experimental sequencing, suspenseful soundscapes, and third-person vantage points. His films have grossed over $2.2 billion worldwide and garnered 14 Academy Award nominations with five wins. He's also the youngest solo director to win the Palme d'Or at Cannes Film Festival. This week, we are featuring Steven Soderbergh, Kaylee and Jack. What else comes to mind when you think of Steven Soderbergh? Well, for me, the first thing I always think about is Oceans. (laughs) I mean, it's the first thing that pops into my mind because it's the first Soderbergh movie I ever saw. Um, And I just remember just loving his style like I just even I think I think I saw it I'm pretty sure I saw it like as a rental in high school or whenever it came out because I was in high school when it came out but I I remember thinking oh this is this is this is something like this is different like I'd never seen anything that stylized probably up until that point to where I thought like 
he has a clear you know way of, of telling the story and then I think I went back and watched Aaron Brockovich later after that and, and, and all of his other films but you know it's just I think about his distinct like sense of being like a filmmaker and having a clear voice but you know he's so he's so varied and in, in, in the films that he's made and I've gone back and watched you know his earlier stuff and and so, and then also it's an age thing for me too. He's like the same age as like my, my parents. So I think there's like this weird thing, like the older I get, I, I start to kind of like imagine how people tell stories based on like, you know, where they are, like in their own kind of like time frame or reference. So it's, it's interesting to me because now I, I can kind of see like his sensibilities, probably why I connect so with them because he's from like the Southern part of, of the U.S. and which is where I am from. And then he also, like, he's, like I said, he's about the same age as my parents. So I, I've started to kind of, like, see that that, that does probably play a, a key role in how he makes films, so. So I hate to do this and date everybody on this podcast, but uh, Ocean's Eleven came out the same year I was born. <laughs> I would say we all know you're a baby, Jack. We We're, all know it's sorry. not a surprise I, I'm anymore. the oldest one here. It's okay. <laughs> uh, but... <laughs> Ocean's Eleven is one of my father's favorite movies. Uh, now that hurts. You saying it that way hurts more than you just said. <laughs> well, here's the, here's the thing about my is a, my my dad loves dad cinema, and I feel like Ocean's Eleven and to an extent Steven Soderbergh movies in general, but especially the Ocean's franchise is peak dad cinema. So he was very excited to show me the trilogy uh, when I was about like. 11 or 12 and Soderbergh is such a stylized director he's so good at moving the camera he's so good at blocking a shot as well and I feel like he doesn't necessarily get enough credit for this like there is so much happening in every frame of a Soderbergh movie but you don't even notice because of how well it's done and how natural it feels and his whole era where he was shooting stuff on iPhones. Again, it's got a very naturalistic sort of viewpoint to it, but he's always paying attention to what's in frame. And I think that's what makes him such a good cinematographer. I think it's what makes him such a good editor as well. Yeah, I think you covered a lot of what I was probably going to say. I think what else comes to mind is that with that stylized nature that he has, is that he's also very good at utilizing music. I think that's probably something underrated and not talked about is how he utilizes music and the score to be essentially a kind of another character in the, in his movies. Uh, one thing also about him, we talk about how he's kind of at the forefront of independent cinema, but when you watch his movies, it feels like a lot of the times you're watching a big studio blockbuster, despite, you know, despite the budget he's probably constrained to. And that's also due to the cast that he's working with sometimes because sure. he's got a slew of fantastic actors. I will also say he was the DP and editor for, in my opinion, one of the greatest films that has ever been put to screen. But we will definitely talk about this later. We'll be getting, we'll be getting there. Yeah, we don't want to. We don't want to. We don't want to overplay our hand. Right. Exactly. Uh, <laughs> But I do think that this is a good segue into our first segment, Four Fantastic Films, where we will discuss four films directed by Steven Soderbergh. So we're going to start in 2000 with Aaron Brockovich, one of two movies that he was nominated for Best Director for in that year. He won it for Traffic, but Aaron Brockovich, I feel like, has stood the test of time 
more so than traffic has, although traffic is still fantastic. I, and I think it does stand the test of time more just because of Julia Roberts' performance. Not to take away credit from Steven Soderbergh by any means, but this is a Julia Roberts film. She mm-hmm. takes command of the character and drives it full force from beginning to end. Uh, whether it's with the relationship between her boyfriend, the, her children, um, or the the mystery and kind of the uncovering the corruption uh, and the the poisons that these people who are getting these diseases and cancers from. So yeah, really, the, I think this whole movie is a tour de force from Julia Roberts. For sure, I it's funny. I did rewatch it um, recently to to prepare, and because I hadn't seen it in a very long time, and you know, the it just it's so sad seeing the corruption that that is. And, and when you realize this is this really happened, like that's the that's the sad thing about it. You know, and you think about these types of things that happen. But you know, one of the things that you were talking about blocking uh, shots, Jack, is that shot where she's in the living room talking with Mark Helen uh, Helenberg's character, but and yeah. the girls are playing in the pool in the in the background. Mm-hmm. And oh my gosh, it's just it's so it's done so well because she's like they're playing and then she starts to realize oh it's the water and then whenever she like has that realization it's just the way that is told is just so cool like it's such a cool I like get- I mean there's so many cool moments like that in that movie it's right there for you he is giving it to you you just have to piece it together the way that the characters do he never he never talks down to his audience but he is always one step ahead of them. I think this movie is also very prescient right now because we are dealing with some big news stories where we have these companies who are skirting regulations, doing things they shouldn't, and real people are getting hurt, whether it's East Palestine tra- uh, train derailment. There was one in Raymond, Minnesota today that spilled a bunch of ethanol and that I think lit fire. And you just have these these companies that are doing this morally bankrupt stuff and it's hurting people and they'll dish out some money to make it go away, but it's not nearly enough to make them hurt. And I think that's what makes movies like this important to keep telling these stories and keeping it in the limelight so that that we're not further desensitized to this stuff. Absolutely. On that note, let's jump ahead uh, one more year to 2001 with one of the coolest movies ever made, Ocean's Eleven. You hit the nail on the head. This movie is fucking cool. You it have really is. from start to finish the, the the music, the heist, the cast. You have some of, if not the coolest actors working at that time and probably still working now in this movie coming together for this big ensemble film to really pull something off that I don't think its predecessor with the Rat Pack film really could. And I think that's really a testament to Soderbergh and his touch on this in that the original, I think, was just playing off the fame of the Rat Pack, whereas Soderbergh took what these actors did well and made this movie, as you said, Jack, super cool. But he is also still playing off the fame of his cast. Like he's oh, playing for sure, off the, for sure. The fame, the fame of Clooney, the fame of Pitt, the fame of Damon. Uh, like, and it's so funny because Damon, in particular, I think is such a fascinating case study in this film because it's post Goodwill Hunting, but pre-born, and him and Ben Affleck are kind of in this space where we're all seeing what are they going to do? What are they going to do? Not that they're Oscar winners, and you've got. 
Damon going and having this and born back to back. And that sort of just propels him into like a list stardom at that point. Uh, and then you, you also got me in that film, Dan. I thought I was pretty good in that film. Oh yeah. Yeah. How you doing? How you doing there? Wait, oh, I'm I'm good. I'm good. Yeah. No, Is this no. Casey Affleck? Yeah, no, it's me, Casey. I'm, I'm Ben's brother, you know. How you doing, Casey? But, uh, I'm 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 doing all right. You know, I'm a little sad, but you know, you're, I mean, you did a lot. I, I mean, you were a lot happier in this movie, maybe angrier, but you were a little more lively in this movie yeah, than you you were in, in, uh, Manchester you know, by the Sea. You know, you know, life does stuff to you. You know, Dan. You know what I'm talking Apparently. about. Yeah. Oh, sorry, guys. What what just happened? <laughs> <laughs> hey, you just missed Casey Affleck. Damn it again. Yeah, God, I keep sure. doing that, Kaylee. For for the record, like Mark Wahlberg has appeared in this podcast multiple Regular times, guest, um, and I have not been able to be on at the same time because I always just keep missing him for some reason. Damn it! <laughs> um, but you know what? It's it's honestly, if you were to tell me like what is my like one to- like my top one like ensemble like film, this has got to be one of the top ones. I mean, it's just. There's no miss in here. Like there is like everybody goes together so well and for it to be such a large ensemble cast and then still have their like their own like moments to shine and everybody plays their part. It's just I mean, it's it's a masterclass in how you have like an ensemble film work. And the other thing that's so interesting is that I kind of get the sense that all of these guys like each other because they kept coming back for more and more movies. And that's really tough when you've got a lot of big name actors in a movie. Usually like a couple of them will start clashing over roles or whatever or egos. But it seems like this was just Soderbergh assembling a group of people that all really enjoyed spending time with each other and just so happened to make a movie while they were doing it. And I think we can't forget just how effective of a heist movie this is. Oh, so yeah. Each, like Kaylee said, each person plays their part so well. But in the end, there's a great twist that even if you know it and you want to just rewatch it, the rewatchability for a heist movie with a big twist isn't so easy. And this movie pulls it off. And, mm-hmm. and to your point about everyone kind of hitting their marks, like some standouts to me were Bernie Mac, Carl Reiner, um, Elliot Don Gould. Cheadle's really yeah. good in this. Well, that's it. You might be one of the people who isn't perturbed by, by his accent. I know some people aren't a big fan of Don Cheadle's accent, but it doesn't bother me so much. It, like but, the, the accent is like iffy, but I think he is still bringing it. I do think my favorite scene is uh, when Matt Damon goes in, he has to kind of be in disguise as uh, from the Gaming Commission and Bernie Mac, like, because Bernie Mac did something wrong, or he was under a fake name, I don't remember quite the details off the top of my head, and they're playing off each other, Andy Garcia, who also is a great villain in this movie, is getting fooled even further by the two of them. I think that's probably a scene that stands out the most to me. It's a great, great film. And uh, you know what, to be fully honest as well, I think both the sequels are kind of fun. Like, I know a lot of people don't like 12, and 13 people like a little bit more, but obviously neither of them are as good as 11, but I think the idea of Tess looking like Julia Roberts is so funny. Uh, yeah, I think it's a, a meta joke that works. I know it's, again, not for everyone, but I think it's very clever to try and pull that off. With I agree. Willis. And then, yes, I'm not the, in general, I'm not the biggest fan of 12, 13's fine, but I do like Vincent Castle's The Night Fox character as like the thief that keeps outsmarting the ensemble of other thieves mm-hmm. in this movie. I think that was uh, a clever wrinkle in the movie 
so no, while while the next two aren't my favorites, the first one is such I mean, is gonna stand the test of time. For sure. Well, Oceans was Soderbergh's first big franchise. Uh so let's jump ahead to twenty twelve with his next big franchise, it's I would right. say. Uh, it's pretty big. <laughs> uh, I say it's like double it's, it's, it's packing a lot. Uh <laughs> Magic Mike, I I'll t- I'll start with this one. Yeah, please um, do. So, here's the thing. I think the first Magic Mike is okay. I think it's got some really great moments in it, but I think it is a wildly dour film, and doesn't necessarily need to be. And I know it doesn't necessarily need to be because its sequel, Magic Mike XXL, shot and edited by Soderbergh, though not directed by him, is one of the best pieces of cinema that has ever been created. And I'm not joking there. There is is no irony in anything that I'm saying. It is one of the most perfect films ever crafted. It is a story of male friendship and female pleasure. Every song that is used is perfect. The choreography is absolutely insane. Everybody's bringing their A-game. It is sexy. It is fun. It is hot as hell. Matt Bomer, I am so attracted to you. Uh (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it is the Top Gun Maverick of male stripper films. Yeah, I'll give it that. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> that is a great way of putting it. Thank you. I mean, and it also should have been nominated for Best Picture. But, you know, I know I know, he didn't technically direct this, but we're really just going to talk about Magic Mike XXL, right? Well, because his <laughs> fingerprints are all over the movie. Right. Yeah. And I think, you know, the, there's, people's there's... fingerprints are all over this movie mine <laughs> i mean because we i think we should mention get out of, i don't want to say get out of the way but we should mention the convenience store scene that oh. is one of the most joyful erotic and just fun scenes that you'll see in in theaters you have uh Joe Manganiello like going in and they're he and his buddies are trying to egg him on to like make the the clerk who looks has this big sad face on like to cheer up so he goes into this this strip tease here and ends with him squirting water all over himself and she cracks a smile and laughs and they're all cheering and dancing like it is wonderful and they're all high on Molly it's awesome oh yeah that too that too of course I mean you know like I'd like to think, even if they weren't high on on drugs, that they'd still be cheering and hooping and hollering. Oh, they totally would. And here's the other thing: I Last Dance also came out this year, and that movie was good. It was better than the first one, I thought. Uh, not quite as good as XXL, but nothing kind of is. Nothing will be. Um, it's got an excellent opening, uh, and then from there on, it's pretty good. Uh, Kaylee, what are, what are I, your thoughts? I was on like, Kaylee, that? Jack and I kind of went on uh, our own tangent here. If you couldn't it's talk, all right. we'd be a tangent, but uh, go ahead. <laughs> that is fine. Um, no, like, so the third one I have not seen yet. Um, I'll be honest, but I have, I, like I said, I love the fact that XXL takes place in my home state. <laughs> 
Oh, a portion of it at least, because they're on their way to Bertle Beach. The stripper convention is <laughs> the sorry, the male entertainer convention, or what we call right. it here in South Carolina, Dirty Myrtle. So it it, it all kind of plays in nicely I need to, go. to the theme. You know, it's no, still... you really don't. You really don't. It's called Dirty Myrtle for a lot of reasons, and <laughs> not all good ones. I yeah, I, I would imagine that XXL glorifies it, and you know, cleans yeah. it. it does. It doesn't glorify. It celebrates it. Celebrates it. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it is a rose-colored version of what goes on at this event. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, we also cannot forget, sorry, Michael Strahan is in this movie. Michael Strahan <laughs> is a stripper in this movie. Yes. He's not just in it. He is, like, <laughs> full to town in this yes. movie. Imagine you show up as an extra on set that day and you're told, hey, we really like you. We're going to bring you in to have an extended part. We're going to bring in ex-football player Michael Strahan to throw money and shove his dick in your face. Can you imagine getting paid to do that? I want that job so bad I can't even. I mean, most people probably wouldn't need to get paid. I mean, I'm sure there's some like union issues there without like not accepting payment, but like that is a great paying job if you Mm -hmm. can get it. No, uh, that also, that scene in uh, the house that Jada Pinkett Smith runs, I think is actually the best scene in the movie. Yeah, uh, sure. I think it's, it's the best use of music, although the end with Mike's final dance with the mirror is also incredible. But uh, this is a completely true story. My friend and I, uh, my best friend here and I were going to see Magic Mike's Last Dance in downtown LA. In LA, there's a lot of traffic, obviously. So we found a playlist that was every song from Magic Mike XXL that someone strips to. And while we were driving, that song that Mike strips to in Jada Pinkett Smith's house comes on. And there's a part in the song where like a gun cocks and she just took her hands off the wheel and just went at the perfect time. (laughs) And it cracked us up. Yes. And yeah, like in that scene, you have a great turn from Donald Glover and kind of you, you'd mentioned the, the last dance with uh, like the mirror scene with Channing Tatum. But I think the movie is kind of bookended with two great performances from, from him. You have that one at the end and you also have that. I call it the go to go the distance moment where he like pony comes on the radio and he starts dancing in his workshop. It's his I want song. This is a and, musical. Yeah. It, it like I, I, kid, I kid you not. The first time that I watched this movie was last year in college. Uh, if you can't tell how much this movie has infested my brain, uh, <laughs> I've seen it probably like seven or eight times in the course of a year. We watched this as part of our backstage musicals unit. And we were told, watch this movie thinking that every dance number is a song sequence. And it works. It works so perfectly. Jack, before this becomes a Magic Mike episode, we probably should move on to the next movie. You're probably right. We're going to jump ahead to 2017 with Logan Lucky. Kaylee, this was your pick. So if you want to start us off with this one. Yes, I just love this film. (laughs) I, I honestly loved it more than I thought I would. It's got such heart. It's got like the the comedy in this movie is priceless. I, I've seen it multiple times and I always like laugh at all the same parts. They it's not stopped being funny for me yet. But the thing that I think I am drawn to it is just I, I'm a very 
nostalgic, sentimental person. And this takes place in, in the South. It takes place, a majority of it takes place like an 30 minutes from where I grew up. <laughs> I mean, Charlotte Motor Speedway is like, you know, 30 minutes up the road from where I grew up. So it's, and, and NASCAR is a huge part of my childhood and the fact that I am not a NASCAR fan and never will be, but I have so many people in my family who are. <laughs> and so it it's, I can still like appreciate those elements of it. You know, I, I, you just, when you grow up, that's close to Charlotte where the NASCAR hall of fame is. Uh, it's just such a part of the, like the fabric of our culture <laughs> in this part of this, of the country. And so that element of it. So for it to be that mixed with like what I love about the heist films and oceans, it's just such a good mix for me. And I mean, the chemistry between Adam Driver and Channing Tatum is amazing. Like they are so believable as brothers. I, I, I love the relationship between Channing and his daughter in this, like, um, in this movie is just amazing. Like he's just like trying to get by as a single dad dealing with his ex-wife. Um, even though Katie Holmes does not have a huge part. I love her. Like West Virginia accent is amazing. <laughs> and then, I mean, you can't go wrong with Daniel Craig as Joe Bang in this movie. It's just so good. It's just, it's so good. Also love that Dwight Yoakam plays the warden of the prison. <laughs> it's such a random, like, like kind of cameo role for him. I mean, it's just, I love it. It's just the best. <laughs> and that's the, that's the movie I'm gushing about. <laughs> <laughs> mm -hmm. uh i also have very fond memories of seeing this movie it was the first time i went to an alamo draft house uh it was the one in like it was one in new york but it was very it was quite the experience when daniel craig was announced as benoit blanc and people seemed confused by that i was kind of like this makes perfect sense didn't you see logan lucky <laughs> he is so fun in this movie and it just proves to me that he should have stopped playing James Bond after Skyfall because he just wants to make his goofy, fun movies where he gets to do a fun accent. Like, he's such a good character actor. The heist of this movie is really fun. Something I actually really like about Soderbergh movies is their last sequences are always the cleanup sequence. Uh, because it's realistically how things would go. Like, in movie world, it ends with the heist working out. In the real world, and in Soderbergh world that he creates, we get Hillary Swank coming in as the FBI agent. And that's the last, like, 15-20 minutes of the movie. And it's really well done, and it's really funny still. I don't know, I really, really like this movie a lot. It's, it's a great one. Yeah, I think you both kind of touched on everything I was going to say, like especially that this was a precursor for Daniel Craig being Benoit Blanc. I kind of wish now after seeing this, though, again, not to rag on again, Oceans 12 and 13, but that we kind of got these kind of heist, not vignettes, but like we had Oceans 11, we have Logan Lucky, we take another kind of random group. We had we had Vegas, we have the South, maybe we go to the uh, the northwest of the country and find some wacky characters there to do a heist. But like, I wish we kind of uh, took the heist and made that its own. Oh, anthology. Anthology. Anthology, yes. Yeah, thank you. Like, if we if he did like an anthology, like a heist anthology franchise, uh, via from Oceans to Logan Lucky to whatever the next thing is, and so on. Because I think 
kind of like how Ryan Johnson is becoming this master whodunit director. I think Soderbergh is kind of the master heist director at this point. And I, if he's willing to keep making them, I'm going to keep watching them. Agreed. Did you guys watch No Sudden Moves? Did you guys enjoy it? I haven't watched it all. I, I liked it. it. I mean, it's, I wouldn't say it's top Soderbergh, but it is very enjoyable. Um, so yeah. But it's I'm, not heisty, right? It's just like kind of like a crime movie. Yeah, it's more of it's. I'd say it's more of a crime, uh, like old, uh, gang noir kind of a thing. Like, yeah, gotcha. It's still good. You know, with that said, there are so many films we try to pick between. We probably could talk about all of them if we really wanted to, but I do think it's time to get into our fantastic fan castings. Here, each of us will cast the four main members of the Fantastic Four: Reed Richards, Sue Storm, Johnny Storm, Ben Grimm, and their nemesis, Doctor Doom with an actor or actress Steven Soderbergh has worked with previously and who has not had a major role in the MCU. Kaylee, as our guest, you have the honor of sharing your cast first. All right, so for for the uh, Mr. Fantastic himself, Reed Richard, I went with Matthew McConaughey. So yeah, so I went with Matthew McConaughey just for his kind of like charisma. I just think he would be really like kind of like a fun take on Reed Richard's and i want him to have his texan accent like i I don't want him to be like you know super (laughs) bougie bougie or posh i want him to be like matthew mcconaughey like i'm thinking like you know i'm thinking about his like charm like in like the wedding planner and things like that like in his like rom-com like heyday but you know but how he is now i mean like i just think it'd be fun to kind of return to those roots i I think it would just be kind of cool to see him in those kind of um shoes uh, for Sue Storm, I went with Natasha McElhoun. I just think she's a, an amazingly beautiful woman. I've had a crush on her since Truman Show. <laughs> and um, I just, like, I just think she was, like, I just think she, they would just go so well together, too. I honestly thought, like, they, I don't think, I don't think they've ever been anything together, but I just, I don't know, I just would love to see that chemistry between the two of them. Um, I love her, like, strength. I really loved that that show that she did with um, Kiefer Sutherland, Designated Survivor, where she plays the first lady. I just think she has like the, she has what she needs to kind of be in that, that role of Sue Storm. Um, For her brother, Johnny, I went with Adam Driver. And I don't think I need to explain much there. I am a huge fan of Adam Driver. Like I said, I kind of went with people who I love to watch on screen and most of the roles that they're in, I at least enjoy something about what they do and what they bring to it. Especially Um, in the cinema classic 65. Of course, the cinema classic 65. I have not seen it, y'all. I live in the middle of the sticks and I have very limited access to theaters. So there you go. (laughs) Off the record, don't. Yeah, it's really bad. <laughs> I figured it was going to be bad. I did not. I didn't think much I mean, about it. When I, saw the I mean, it's great, but it's bad. <laughs> yeah. Is it a great bad or not really? I, I mean, yes. seriously. Okay. Is it a, a right safe on the, show? It's like, right on the edge. Of, it is right on the edge of great. It is bad, like bad, it bad. is razor like, thin. It's got a like a pinky toe over flirting with terrible. Oh man! All right. So for Ben Grimm, I uh, went with Scott Con. I mean, he's just a fun, he's a fun kind of a character actor too. And I think now when I think of him, I think about him in his like Hawaii 5 role. <laughs> it's kind of taken over my brain of like 
him in that that particular role just because I grew up watching the original Hawaii Five-O and I think whenever he got cast I was like oh I can see this and like yeah, even though I don't watch the show my dad does um I just thought like his sensibility would be good for that role of Ben Grimm and then of course for the villain himself Victor Von Doom I went with the incomparable Daniel Craig because as we just said he's a great character actor so I think that he would have a lot of fun with the role of Dr. Doom I just want to know what accent we would have with a Daniel Craig Doctor Doom. That's the only thing going through my the head. The Latvian accent. I would love to hear it. <laughs> like what that workshop sounds like to him, because I think it's going to be something we've never heard before. <laughs> uh, to be honest, much as I love Knives Out, I think it would have been really funny if in every new Knives Out movie, Benoit Blanc is the same character, but just has a different accent. <laughs> Oh, man. Just, yeah, let Daniel Craig, Daniel Craig. I think someone, I, I recently heard someone say that. Like, they thought that, like, they were, oh, I know. I was li listening to a review of it, and they thought that, that Daniel Craig was going to have a different accent for this one. And so they would have preferred that, too. It just would have been funny. Yeah, for sure. It's just, it's, it's his bit. It's what he does, mm -hmm. you know? <laughs> new case, new accent. <laughs> exactly. Keep them on their toes. For sure. Jack, what about your cast? So my cast, maybe the hottest cast that I've ever assembled for any one of these pitches uh, for my Reed Richards picked a man who uh, is in his 50s, but looks like he's in his 30s. He's been entertaining me and so many on TV's community for six seasons and a movie, uh, Joel McHale. I think he is such a funny compelling snarky guy but he's got a leader quality to him that's jeff winger and i think that he would bring a lot to reed richards for sue storm i have chosen viola davis who is great in everything and i think in the role that i am going to have her play in this uh is going to fit right into this cast uh for her brother, Johnny Storm, I have picked Jay Farrow, who was a cast member on Saturday Night Live for a fair amount of time, uh, who was in Steven Soderbergh's Unsane. He's out and around. Um, he's great. Uh, he's also very hot. And I think that uh, if you can tell where I'm going with this. Uh, no idea. I think it's going to be excellent. Hot for my people ben, only. Got it. <laughs> for my Ben Grimm, uh, I picked Seth MacFarlane. Great voice character actor but also great singing voice not a bad looker either just saying and then as my victor von doom he's not necessarily going to be that much of a villain in this movie but he, he's gonna be around he's gonna be there and uh i did pick probably the man that i have the biggest crush on in this world i was gonna say i was a little surprised that he he was doom in this situation and not potentially re well well you know dan there there's a lot that happens in these movies um right. there right. there are th there are things that you know castings get changed around and ideas form in your heads and suddenly you have a vision that you can't unsee and that you need to see put on screen so you cast map over as victor von doom again the the ideas gyrate around in your head it's it's hard to stop it's really tough to stop, especially when it's this idea. <laughs> I mean, the first thing I saw, I thought of when I saw your casting, Jack, was I was like, I had this like weird thing of like, oh, him playing Doom cracks me up because he's like was on Doom Patrol. Great, great cast. I, I, I have personal stakes and interest in what your pitch is now. But before we get to that, we have to get to my cast. 
I went in a similar vein. I wanted my film to be very, very sexy. This is going to be one sexy Fantastic Four film. And I tried to find people to fill said sexy shoes. So for Reed Richards, Mr. Fantastic himself, I cast someone who had a part in No Sudden Moves in 2021, and that is Don Draper, Mr. John Hamm. I think John Hamm legitimately, a handful of years ago, could have been Reed Richards if the Fantastic Four was being pitched earlier. I think he has the charisma, the look. Um, I think he'd look good with some silver in his hair, if I do say so myself. And I think one thing I really want in a Reed Richards in this movie is someone who plays indifferent very well. And if you've seen uh, Mad Men, John Hamm can play indifferent extremely well. Moving on to his wife, Sue Storm, I cast an actress who was in 2011's Contagion, and that is Marion Cotillard. If you just listen to her, her voice only, super sexy, very attractive. I think she would have great sizzling chemistry between her co-stars. I mean, you could disagree. I think you're crazy if you disagree, but I think Marion Cotillard would be a wonderful Sue Storm. For her brother, I don't think I need to say too much more on why I made this choice, but I turned to 2012's Magic Mike and the subsequent Magic Mike films and cast who could have been Gambit in a future X-Men film, but that is no longer the case. So I'm casting him as Johnny Storm, and that is Channing Tatum. I mean, I don't know. I mean, I don't see why this shouldn't happen, personally. I think he would be a great Johnny Storm. I think he could take influences from Chris Evans's uh, original run as the character and uh, improve on him in a very, very attractive way. Uh, for Ben Grimm, I'm going with his co-star from the Magic Mike films, at least the first two, and casting Joe Mangianello. Again, not to you know skirt responsibilities describing why, but if you've seen Joe Mangianello, why not? You know, that's pretty, pretty much pretty much my answer. Why not? And then finally, for Victor Von Doom, I am casting someone who is in, in his own kind of renaissance. Uh, he is the recent Best Actor winner at the Academy Awards. He was in Soderbergh's No Sudden Moves in 2021, and that is Brendan Fraser. As Jack also said, he's not going to play a large role in this, but he's going to play an important role in this when it's all said and done. I want to see Brendan Fraser do more, and especially do more award-winning things, unlike The Whale, which was crap. Don't see The Whale. It's bad. It's not good. It's terrible. I think it's good. It it ages like milk. I have no desire to see that movie at all. It is bad. I'm happy for him, but that is about the only nice thing I can say about anything when it comes to the whale. But with that said, Brendan Fraser is going to be in my Fantastic Four film. Also, I would just like to make a note. Doom does have a decent role in mind. He's just not the role that you think he's going to have. Gotcha. Okay. Thank you for the correction. In mine, he will have very limited screen time. Well, with our films cast, now it is time to pitch our Steven Soderbergh-helmed Fantastic Four film. But before we get into those pitches, I do have two questions. First, are your films origin films? No. Mine is a re-origin film. Ooh. Mine is not an origin film as well. Second question, are your films part of the MCU? It could be. God, no. I'm now imagining if mine was and how fucked up that would be. 
<laughs> so yes, yes, mine now is just for the meme. You know what? Mine would also be pretty fucked up if it was at the MCU, but we're still gonna go with God now. Okay. So we have a we have a maybe, we have a God now, and we have a why not. The perfect range. <laughs> so again, Kaylee, as our guest, you have uh, honors of sharing your pitch first. Okay, so for my PG thirteen rated Fantastic Four film titled "To Be Determined." So yeah, I, I had a feeling when I saw I I had a feeling that what y'all's uh, pitches kind of would be like, and I figured whenever we were like going to be discussing Magic Mike, what I was probably in for. So I kind of went in a different route, and I I kind of went for some of I pulled a lot of inspiration from a lot of different Soderbergh movies. So I'll just get a little bit into what is about, and I I will say this I I cast the actors I did also kind of because of the ages that they are at now, because in my mind I'm seeing them in playing kind of the realm of like most of them are in their early 50s uh adam driver is about about turn 40 so and and i know he's a little bit younger than natasha so i think that it, it kind of it works well for them to be in the the season of life that they're in right now that's kind of where i wanted to give a little bit of a of reference to where i'm starting so we open on johnny and he's sharing in group therapy session about the current mystery of his life he is waking up in strange places with parts of his memory just completely gone or jumbled. The therapist gives him an assignment to go home and begin keeping journals of what he can remember, even if the parts of what he can remember kind of feel like a dream. Meanwhile, we have Reed and Sue who are celebrating their 25th wedding anniversary. Having been gone through quite a lot of stuff over the years, they have recently reconciled after a brief separation breakdown of communication happening in that, that time frame of their marriage um so they kind of were forced to examine their relationship and then kind of rekindle what they once had so that's kind of the, the season of life that they're in right now also going on you see kind of like these headlines in the background of certain things of these random fires that are happening in like major locations but they don't really know what's causing them so sue receives a call from her brother johnny who's you know kind of turning 40 soon and just has a lot of kind of like that that going through that time of your life like a lot of things happening but also he's tells her about how he's having these kind of traumatic situations happening where he's he's having these dissociative kind of fugue episodes where he's not remembering things that happened to him and he's going through this intensive therapy and he wants to know if he can come and um, stay with her and kind of talk about their childhood and things like that to try to you know as part of his therapy so um this is kind of being um, recalled to ben when reed and him are golfing and he fills them in on everything that's happened in their lives and stuff like that and how um johnny has kind of come to visit them so at night, Johnny is starting, while he's staying with his sister and brother-in-law, he's starting to have these very lucid dreams. Um, and in these lucid dreams, they are all these superheroes, a part of the Fantastic Four, uh, with Reed and Sue and then Ben, of course. And so he knows these people, but he's seeing him as a part of this group. And they're, you know, these superheroes who are battling against Dr. Doom in these very lucid dreams. So he goes with his sister and brother-in-law to this party. And he's introduced to Victor Von Doom and that kind of like triggers a memory for him. And he recognizes him from these dreams as Dr. Doom. So these memories are flooding back 
Um, and so he's going to confront Doom. And so what happens is now the gig is up. Doctor Doom has been kind of like secretly controlling the Fantastic Four to do all this evil bidding where they have these powers and they and they do all the stuff with their powers for what he wants them to do. But they kind of like just live normal everyday lives that they don't remember. Kind of yeah, very similar to like Severance or something like that. Like it's very like this kind of separate thing. But what's happened is like Johnny's caught on because something's happened with like his brain to where he's kind of kind of half remembering this stuff. So he confronts Doom. He's like, hey, you need to stop doing this. You know, this isn't right. And so Von Doom uh basically to combat that he could uh he holds Sue and Reed hostage in the Baxter building. So Johnny and Ben have to kind of form with Sue and Reed's kids, a fantastic four to basically break into the building and save them. And so that's where you get the kind of like heist of it all. They're kind of like breaking into the Baxter building to save Reed and Sue from Dr. Doom. And that's the movie. A little bit of everything in there. Hey, that's what you want with a Soderbergh film. A little bit of everything crossing lots of different genres, uh, heists. Very good. Very, very good. That, that was very intelligent, very smart. I'm uh, the brains of this podcast today. You're you're really you're really actually doing the most here, Haley. You're really carrying the uh, the intelligence level of this of this episode. I don't know how I'm going to follow that one. So, I'll with try. that said, Jack, how about your pitch? Sure thing. So, in this world, superheroes have one job, and that's to strip. Ten years ago, Reed Richards was the head of this excellent group of strippers entertainers what have you they were called the fantastic five but at a certain point one of the members left uh and they were the fantastic four they were called that because reed richard's stripper name was mr fantastic that was 10 years ago reed richards is a little bit older now he's a little bit worn out he was called Mr. Fantastic because he could stretch his body in so many ways, but now it's, he's he's kind of worn out. That is until he receives a call from his old partner, Ben Grimm, who used to strip with him, tells him Von Doom is dead. Do- Dr. Doom's dead? Dr. Doom was, of course, Victor Von Doom's stripper name. Ben tells him yes, and that he needs to come to the wake. Turns out the wake is not a wake, but it's actually a party. And Von Doom is not dead, in fact. In fact, this was a ploy for Johnny Storm, Ben Grimm, a.k.a. The Thing, uh, who was called that because of his massive The Thing, and Victor Von Doom. Uh, Again, Dr. Doom. Because... There's a superhero convention in San Diego called Comic-Con. C-U-M-I-C-C-O-N. <laughs> I'm just looking at Dan's face right now. I'm, I'm intrigued on where this is going. <laughs> so anyways, they're like, Reed, you have to come to Comic-Con. But Reed's like, no, I can't do that. <laughs> but those days are behind me. That is, until he hears... His signature song, which is, of course, Bendova by Lil John featuring Tyga. And Mike Shore knows that say. is John Ralphio's favorite song. The funeral song. Creation. Anyway, hearing this song and stripping again convinces Reed Richards to go and reunite the Fantastic Four. But wait. Reed says, we have to do this right. 
we can't just be the Fantastic Four. We need our fifth. Johnny's like, well, I can try, but I haven't spoken to Sue since she left the group. And Reed's like, trust me, we can get her. So we go on our road trip because it's a road trip movie. And, you know, along the way, Ben Grimm has this whole insecurity about his massive the thing ends up going into a convenience store and stripping because, you know, I don't know what movie I'm pulling from. I'm just, just randomly coming into my head. Uh, the idea, like such creative and original yeah, in ingenuity that excites. Uh, but again, that's when we get to where Sue Storm has been holed up because she is at a place called Stark Industries. Not only is she there, she runs Stark Industries. Stark Industries is not the Stark Industries that we've known from the MCU. Stark Industries is an MFing club. Not just a club, a strippers club where Sue Storm is the MC and she's overseeing her new group of male entertainers that she calls the Avengers. We've got Tony Stark, the Iron Man, played by George Clooney. We've got uh, Matt Damon as stripper Loki. Uh, we've got Brad Pitt as Captain America. We have Don Cheadle as stripper War Machine. That's that's a crossover. This is multiverse War Machine. Reed and Johnny and Ben and Victor Von Doom all go into this house. Uh, they try to convince Sue Storm to come back with them. And Sue's like, I'll do it on two conditions. Reed asks, okay, what are they? She says, first one, you have to perform for me tonight. So Reed goes out there and puts on the performance of his lifetime. He strip battles against George Clooney's Iron Man uh, and wins, of course. Sue says, all right, I'll come with you, but I have one more condition. Reed's like, okay, what's that? She says, I need to strip. Before, before she was just their MC like she's doing now, but she wants in on the action. And, of course, they're a little concerned about doing it at first, but Reed's like, you know what? Yeah, Sue, come with us. Come to Comic-Con. You'll you'll strip. So, the rest of the movie is them. They get to Comic-Con, and the last hour of the film is the literal and figurative climax. As each member of the Fantastic Four performs a signature dance, Victor Von Doom has... A thing called Doombots, which is essentially just 50 of him. So imagine a 10-minute dance scene where it's 50 Matt Bomers all stripping, dancing up on each other, and getting super hot and sweaty. Like, just, just picture that in your mind for a moment and just sit with that thought. Then picture Reed and Sue doing a duet together as a dance. Again, imagine Viola Davis and Joel McHale doing a dance together. Imagine Jay Farrow as Johnny Storm stripping to the song Fire and Desire. It will be the greatest film of all time. It will win 26 Academy Awards. It will win original and adapted screenplay because it's an original movie based on Magic Mike XXL. It's called Fantastic Four XXL. Yeah, our explicit tag is going to be doing a lot of heavy lifting this episode. Yeah, this is not for kids. <laughs> this is this is not an episode for the kids. Not a family movie. 
No, not a family movie at all. Unlike Shazam. Unlike Shazam 2, uh, which today I walked out of. <laughs> that's that's not a joke. I, I went to this movie with my roommate, and 40 minutes in, we were like, this is terrible, can we leave? I was very tempted to say, well, that's the end of the episode after he said 50 Matt Bomers uh, dancing up on themselves. <laughs> and we're done. <laughs> yeah, that, that, I don't know if we can top that. <laughs> there, there, there's so much that, that that that's gonna get cut out of this. I, I, I can't imagine that Dan. I can't imagine that Dan's gonna keep most of my pitch. But uh, no, no, it's go. great. I love. Hey, I love it. It's like I said, not for kids. Not for kids. Hard, <laughs> hard R. Oh man. Uh, the second I thought of Bendova as Reed Richards' signature song, I, that's I just like, stuck in my head now. And I just see uh, Ben Schwartz and Jenny Slate uh, just. <sighs> kind of grinding up on each other as they stare at his own feet. <laughs> They'll be in there. They'll be around. God, as Mona Lisa and uh, John Ralphio Saberstein. They're actually going to be Black Widow and Hawkeye in the Stark <laughs> Industries. <laughs> uh, I feel like Jenny Slate's one of the people getting grinded up on in Sue Storm's. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Oh, man. But she's also doing her Marcel Oh, my God. Michael Strahan All make this any is getting cut. Oh, oh Michael! Man. Michael Strahan is Thor. Michael Strahan is Thor. <laughs> Absolutely. Oh God. Um, okay, right, well, Dan, let's hear yours. Yeah, yeah. Thank you for that pitch, Jack. Uh, that I have to follow. My film by Steven Soderbergh is called "Rocks, Lies, and a Hologram." Sue Storm has been a superhero for some time, along with her husband Reed, his childhood friend Ben, and her brother Johnny. However, they have since retired from being an active superhero team, and she has since also become unhappy in her marriage with Reed, who spends most of his time in his lab and not with her. The film opens with her narration and then cuts to her on the couch of a therapist's office and the therapist who we cannot see. She further reveals that Reed seems to be keeping her at arm's length, which for him can be pretty large distance, and she cannot understand why. Since the team's disbandment, Reed was able to finally reverse Ben's gri Ben Grimm's powers, but since then, Ben has come on some hard times, and his wife Alicia, played by Riley Keough, left him. Ben had become much less humble person compared to when he was covered in rocks, and she got fed up with it, or so she says. Without discussing it with Sue, Reed invited Ben to stay with them until he got back up on his feet. After Ben gets settled in, he realizes that despite being grateful to Reed for helping him, he no longer has much else keeping them bonded. However, despite Sue's initial reservations with him moving in, she and Ben get to become much closer. We soon learn that Sue's brother Johnny had been having an affair with Alicia even before she left Ben. Johnny, always the hot-headed free spirit, went on to become a content creator going around starring in various videos on social media. Sue goes on to help Ben look for a job and a new place to live. After Ben finds both, Sue, who is now closer with Ben than Reed appears to be, makes a surprise trip to visit Ben. As Sue waits for Ben to finish getting cleaned up, she notices his laptop open to a window with a bunch of video files listed with names of some other low-level heroes and villains who are no longer active as well. When questioned, Ben explains that they contain interviews with women sharing their deepest desires and darkest fantasies with him. Something Ben always fantasized about, especially when he still had his powers and was fantasizing about what his life would be like if he were to lose them. Baffled and angry, Sue hurries away. The next day, Alicia appears uninvited at Ben's home and presses him to explain what shocked Sue. Ben angrily tells her that it is no longer any of her business since she left him, and then questions her back asking how she found out, as Sue and Alicia were never that close. 
Alicia then figures out that it was the videos that Ben had talked about making, but she never thought he would go through with them. She always found it too strange that he got satisfaction from the idea of women strangers sharing their innermost desires. Ben offers Alicia a chance to make a video herself, assuring her that it is just for him. She agrees and later reaches out to Sue to tell her about the experience. Sue is mortified and Johnny is incensed when Sue divulges to her brother what Alicia has done. In a later scene, Ben stops over at his old home where Alicia is still living. He was looking to pick up something he left but never had the chance to get after their split. Alicia lets him in, not realizing that Johnny's watch was left on the nightstand. Furious, Ben goes to find Johnny and in all likelihood kill him. As the two begin to fight, Ben is able to get Johnny by the neck and starts choking him. This whole time, Johnny is threatening to use his powers, which would not have been an issue when Ben had his powers, but now would cause him severe injury. Before Johnny is about to pass out, his eyes ignite, and just as he is about to burst into flame, both he and Ben are separated by force fields created by Sue just in the last moment. Ben, defeated, turns from Johnny and lumbers away. Sue follows Ben back to his place. As she tends to Ben, she makes a confession that she too discovered a sign of Reed's infidelity. She found a necklace that she knew belonged to Janet Van Dyne in the lab while Reed was busy working away on another project. With this admission, Sue requests Ben make a video of her. Ben, initially reluctant, agrees after Sue insists. The film ends with a cut back and forth between the videos that Alicia and Sue made. Alicia admits that she always felt safe with Ben when he had his powers, but secretly knew that his outside matched his rough guarded insides, even if he tried to show otherwise. She also thought that Ben would soften when his exterior did. That is why she secretly hoped he lost his powers. Not because she was ashamed of them, but because she thought he would be a be better person for it. And when that did not change, and even got worse, she was compelled to find Johnny, who she knew was the same person, regardless of his powers. But she ultimately knew in the end of it, it was a mistake, and she has some deep regrets about leaving Ben. In Sue's video, she talked about how when she and Reed were first together, she never thought anyone could see her the way he had. But over time, the hero work and the lab work took bigger priority, more and more did she feel invisible around him. Her deepest desire was to be seen again like Reed used to. And when she first discovered the videos Ben had, it struck a deep chord with her that made her frightened. And then a sense of longing grew in her. She just wanted to be seen. The screen goes black. During a mid credit scene, we see Reed walk into a therapist's office. It is the same office we saw Sue in at the beginning of the film. Uh, I hope I'm not early, Reed says. We hear a voice off screen say, not too early at all. Please take a seat. Um, thank you, Reed continues. Uh, I guess to be upfront, I'm having some marriage troubles, and I, I think I'm to blame. Can you help me? I, I'll certainly try, the voice states. With your consent, though, one thing I'd like to do is document our session so I can go back and re-examine them to better help you in the future. Would you mind if I recorded the video of our sessions? As we are left with those words, the camera pans away from Reed whose response is drowned out by a growingly ominous score to the front of the therapist's desk. As the camera makes its way up, we get a glimpse of a nameplate, Dr. Von Doom, then a decorative mask displayed on the top of the desk. Then the camera reaches the bottom half of a man's face and stops. What is at first appearing to be a look of concern, then shifts to a wry, if not malicious smile. The film goes black. Wow, you guys pitched some serious movies there. I loved it. That was fantastic. Yeah, it was really Dan, great. I'm, I, I didn't get into it. I am also a huge Sex, Lies, and Videotape fan, too. Very, very different than a lot of stuff I've pitched before. Yes, uh, very, but I liked it a lot. Yeah. I, I did, too. I, I, wanted, I, I figured we were going to get a heist. 
admittedly knew the route Jack was going pretty much <laughs> from the start. The second so I, I put Matt Bober in my cast, he knew. No, what was I knew. Happening. I knew. I knew the second you put Matt Bober in your cast, what was going to happen. Um, <laughs> I could have gone like the contagion side effect route. Didn't really want to do that, and I'm like, what if I? What if I went like sex lies on a videotape is really the thing that kind of put him on the map. For mm-hmm. sure. So that that's really why I wanted to do that and made sure we touched up, even though it wasn't one of the films we discussed, mm-hmm. that we that we kind of highlighted that in some way. So that's why sure. I went that route. No, I liked how you did it too. I really I liked the I liked the notes from the original film that are there, mm-hmm. but also how you tied it into like the intersectionality of like their relationships. Yeah, like, I appreciate that you didn't that one, just yeah. take a movie and then redo it with the Fantastic Four. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> To be fair, yours is the movie of the three that I'd want to watch more and more. So, oh, I, absolutely. But <laughs> um, yeah, Dana and I have the depressing ones. <laughs> yeah, you, you guys, you guys have like, you guys have the art. I have the cinema. It was very disappointing that I could not cast young James Spader in my movie, though. That would be really good. Yeah, you'd, yes. you'd, have, you'd have digitally de-aged James Spader. Well, he's Ultron, though. He's Ultron, um, though. It's the like, voice he, of Ultron. We you can, don't see his face. I'd still say the, the major rules. Role. Like, <laughs> hey, you know, James Spader's voice does it for me like Marion Coltier's voice does it for me. Yes, gosh. Yes. That's, what, that's mean, all you need. That's all you need is the voice. His character, that's like, I mean, I... I mean, because he's so like dislikable in a lot of other films, oh, yeah. but he's That's just so he's likeable. so like earnest in this movie. I love him mm-hmm. in Sex Love Videotape for sure. His dislikability is what makes him likable. Yes, absolutely. Anyway, <laughs> there you have it. Our fan castings, our pitches are complete for a Steven Soderbergh Fantastic Four film. We do hope you, the listeners, enjoyed our exploration into this what if scenario. We wanted to make special note that the Fan Cast at Four podcast is hosted for free on Spotify Podcasts, formerly known as Anchor. And we encourage you, if you have your own podcast idea, to check it out. It really is a great resource for getting your idea off the ground. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. If you're listening on YouTube, we'd greatly appreciate you hitting the subscribe button and commenting with who your Steven Soderbergh cast would be on what you thought of our lists and pitches and on which director you'd like to see next. I want to thank Matt Hart and Maddie Gunner for the fantastic theme music they created for us. And certainly I want to thank you, Kaylee, for being our guest today. I hope you enjoyed your return to the show. Now, please tell our listeners where else they can find you. Um, I mean, pretty much on social media. I'm on Instagram, Kaylee Vaughn IRL. Wonderful. Thank you all so much for listening. I'm Dan Bettenhausen. And I am Jack Mayer. And on behalf of our guest, Kaylee Vaughn, we hope you all stay fantastic. Bend over, make a meet. <laughs> <laughs>